Matthew 27, verses 15 through 26. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Joseph Mitchell was talking about his own faith. And then his sister asked him an important question. Buddy, she said, what does Jesus' death on the cross a long time ago have to do with my sins now? Buddy, what does... All of that stuff about Jesus back then, what does that have to do with me now? 
And Joseph Mitchell admitted that even though he was a writer who made a living with words, at this point he found himself momentarily at a loss for words because of this weighty question. There was a bit of a pause. And finally, he replied with a stammer. Somehow, he was our representative. I love that little story of Joseph Mitchell sharing his faith with his sister. I respect the question that Joseph's sister is asking in that moment. What does Jesus' death on the cross way back then, what does that have to do with me now? It's a question that all of us need to consider. In fact, perhaps some of us here today, like Joseph Mitchell's sister, need to slow down and pay attention to that question itself, perhaps because this Jesus stuff is all new to you, or or perhaps because you've been around this Jesus stuff for quite some time, but you've never really taken the time to process what it all really means. I also respect the pause before Joseph's reply. He doesn't simply start blurting out answers at his sister as she's asking some of the deepest questions of life. I love the pause. Some questions are too profound to be answered flippantly. You know what I mean? And maybe in Joseph Mitchell's pause, there's a word for some of us who are here today with our doubts and our own questions with our griefs, with our concerns. And we need, like Joseph Mitchell, to slow down and instead of just blurting out the answer maybe that we learned in Sunday school years ago, we need to slow down a little bit in front of such a significant question. What does the death of Jesus Christ so many years ago have to do with me now? Maybe the answer is more profound than just blurting out a quick answer would represent. But I also appreciate the answer that Joseph Mitchell eventually offers. Somehow, when Christ was dying, he was dying as our representative. That's a profound concept that we may not get to the bottom of. But there's something profoundly right about it. When Jesus was dying, it was not merely a tragedy of historic proportions that would be remembered for hundreds or thousands of years to come. He was dying with a purpose. He was dying for a purpose that He and His Father had agreed upon. He was dying as our representative. He was dying as our substitute. He was dying... For us, He was dying in our place. See, this interaction between Joseph Mitchell and his sister, it presses us toward one of the most significant questions that faces any of us in our lives. The question of what Jesus' life and death so many years ago have to do with us today. And here in Matthew 27, we're going to kind of slow down. 
We're not just going to blurt out quick answers. We're going to slow down and we're going to pay attention to this account, this historical record that God has given to us in His Word. We're going to pay attention to what happens. And we're going to pay attention to what it means for us today. We're going to pay attention to what happened historically in the death of Jesus Christ so many years ago. And we're going to pay attention to what it means for people like us and our own sisters and our own loved ones and our neighbors and for many who are dying around the world. We're going to pay attention to what happened back then and what it means for us today. We'll take uh, just a couple minutes and kind of walk through the story together. And then I want to leave some time to kind of wrestle with three massive questions. Three massive questions that this passage leaves right in front of us. This story takes place before the judgment seat of the governor named Pontius Pilate. There's a historical setting for this story nearly 2,000 years ago. But notice the irony. Jesus Christ, the Lord, as Pilate says, the one who is called the Christ, the one who is recognized as the anointed king of Israel, the judge who one day will judge all The judge is now being judged. The judge is now standing trial. The judge is submitting himself to the judgment of Pontius Pilate. And verse 17 kind of draws attention to something important in this life and death matter of judgment. In this life and death issue that Pilate is called to judge upon, Pilate gives an option. As was customary, Pilate is prepared to release, to set free, to give life to one who otherwise would be condemned to die. And so Pilate gives an option. Who will be released? Who will be set free? Which man who otherwise would be condemned to die today will go free? On the one hand, there is Barabbas, described as a notorious criminal. Probably a notorious member of some kind of insurrection against the Roman government. A lot of people in America would like this guy Barabbas. He doesn't like the government. He doesn't like the empire. He wants to go and start a revolution. He's got the American spirit deep within him. And this revolutionary, this notorious criminal, this notorious convict, who otherwise would be condemned to death, is set up in front of the people. And the option is given. Who will go free? Barabbas, the notorious convict, or Jesus, Pilate underscores it, the one who is being called Christ, the one who is being called the anointed king of God's people, which one will go free? 
And throughout this passage, the innocence of Christ is demonstrated and underlined over and over and over again. First, we see it in verse 18 as Pilate is offering this choice between the notorious criminal and the one who is called Christ. And in verse 18, we learn that Pilate knows full well Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He's being accused. Why? Because of the envy of the religious leaders. Because of the ugly, festering self-righteousness underneath the surface layer of piety and good deeds. Underneath the surface layer of being respectable people, these religious leaders are festering with envy. Pilate can see right through it, as is often the case with self-righteousness. We deceive ourselves more easily than we deceive other people, right? And in his, their self-righteousness is obvious enough to Pilate, and so Pilate can see their charges don't carry any weight. Their charges are because of their own envy. And then in verse 19, we get this fascinating little story. While Pilate was sitting on his judgment seat, preparing to judge the judge of the universe, his wife has a message for him with a degree of urgency. I've had a dream. And in the Roman culture in that day, dreams carried even more weight than they might in our culture today. I've had a dream. It seems like something that the gods are trying to say to me. A Roman person might understand it that way. It seems that this is a really big deal. I've had a dream and I've suffered much. Why? Because of this righteous man, she says. Something revealed to her in a dream. Something revealed to her supernaturally, we might say reveals that this man, Jesus Christ, is not guilty. To the contrary, he is innocent. And on the story goes, the innocence of Christ is underscored again and again. Come to verse 23. Pilate keeps pressing the issue, don't you want Jesus to be released and then in, and the people say, let him be crucified. Verse 23, Pilate's assessment is this. Why? Why? What evil has he done? And yet the crowds shout all the more, crucify him. Crucify the innocent one. They call for the condemnation of the one who is innocent. So, verse 24 tells us, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, an outward sign trying to demonstrate his own innocence. He washes his hands with this outward sign trying to demonstrate his own innocence, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. This is the first big question that this passage kind of drops in front of us. 
question goes something like this. Who is guilty? And the first layer of the answer to the question, who is guilty, is that it certainly is not Jesus. His innocence is demonstrated over and over and over and over again throughout this passage. Who then is guilty in this passage? Pilate washes his hands with a sign of outward piety. I'm not guilty of the death of Jesus. But how far does this outward sign, washing his hands of his own guilt, go? It's interesting that after this outward sign of pretending to kind of wash his hands and declare himself innocent, Pilate acts more guilty than he did before washing his hands. Probably revealing something about the guilt of Pilate himself. But it's not only Pilate. It's this crowd of people. This crowd of people who are calling for the crucifixion, the condemnation of the innocent one. Who's in this crowd? We often think of guilty people as rebellious people who have done significantly wrong things. And to be sure, in a crowd of any size, there will be guilty people in that regard, rebellious people who have done many outwardly wrong things in their lives, who are known by others around them as guilty of wrongdoing. But notice, much of this crowd seems to be made up of pious people. Religious people who are listening to the voice of the religious leaders. Religious leaders whose lives are outwardly spick and span, whose lives are outwardly clean and tidy, whose lives are outwardly respectable before others. And it is these outwardly respectable people, these outwardly externally religious people, who lead the cry, crucify. It is these outwardly spick and span, these outwardly squeaky clean religious people who lead the cry of saying, His blood be on us. Now unfortunately, this passage and this part of the story of the death of Jesus Christ has sometimes been misused. It's sometimes been used in ways that are contrary to the way that the Bible itself wants it to be used. Around the world and across the centuries at times, people have used these verses and the account in other Gospels like this to say that the death of Jesus is all because of one ethnic group. It's all the fault of Jewish people. And we need to recognize this is a wrong reading of this passage. To use passages of Scripture, to take verses of Scripture out of context and then use them to promote hatred toward or bigotry toward groups of people is evil. And we can show that from the text itself, right? Is it only Jewish people here who are guilty of the blood of Jesus? What about Pilate? 
He's not Jewish. He represents the Roman Empire. And who else are Jewish people in this passage? Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's ethnically Jewish. So let's be careful not to take this passage as a way of saying this passage assigns guilt to one ethnic group. Who does this passage assign guilt to? Everybody except Jesus Christ. Who's guilty in this passage? Everybody except Jesus Christ. Maybe we'll bring in John Stott, a preacher who I love to say a little bit about this for us. In a famous passage in his book called The Cross of Christ, which is a beautiful book reflecting on the cross of Christ. John Stott explains what's going on like this. He says, this was how the apostles saw it. Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and Jews, had together conspired against Jesus. More important still, we ourselves are also guilty. Do you see what he's saying there? More importantly, we ourselves are also guilty. We too sacrifice Jesus to our greed like Judas. We too sacrifice Jesus to our envy like the self-righteous priests. We too sacrifice Jesus to our ambition like Pilate. Were you there when they crucified my Lord, the old Negro spiritual asks? And we must answer, yes, we were there. And not as spectators only, but as participants. Plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing Him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as His. There is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Let me ask you this question as we follow the journey of Jesus Christ toward the cross. As we spend these weeks with this prayer that we would see Jesus a little bit more clearly. Let me ask you this question. Are you aware of your guilt? Are you aware of your share of the guilt that led to the crucifixion of the Son of God? Are you aware that the cross was something done, as John Stott would say, by us? In other words, because of our sins? Because of our guilt? The cross of Jesus Christ is a place where our self-righteousness must die. Like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, some of us may want to kind of put on an outward appearance of piety. 
And some of us may have been successful in the past of convincing others, I got this, I'm doing well, I'm a righteous person. Some of us may have been successful in convincing others that we're relatively good people, respectable, upstanding, doing well. Nothing to confess, no problems to admit to. The cross of Jesus Christ is a place where our self-righteousness needs to die. And in order to see clearly how much Jesus Christ has done for us, some of us might need to slow down and pause long enough to recognize it was my sin that held him there. Indeed, only the one who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in the grace. This leads to a second question in this passage, not only the question of who is guilty, but a second question in this passage, why is the notorious convict going free? After these heavy questions, that kind of crescendo in verse 25, we get this comment in verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas. Let this moment sink in. I mean, just try for a moment to view this through the eyes of Barabbas. You're guilty of everything they accused you of and you know it. If you're an insurrectionist, you're probably guilty of everything they accused you of and you're proud of it. You'd be honored to die for your cause. You'd be proud to die for those sins. Your death is looming. The day is approaching. The sentence of condemnation is assured. And the only thing that remains to find out, the only thing that remains to be discovered, is in light of your guilt, when will the execution day be? The only thing that remains to be seen is which day will be judgment day. And with this weight of your sins, with this weight of your death which is surely coming, with the awareness of that judgment day which is close, now you hear that you are going free. You're free. Instead of getting what your sins deserve, according to the law, instead you're going to receive something you don't deserve by pure grace. And as the shackles are undone, And as the pronouncement of freedom is spoken, you now have a new life to live. A new life to live that's all by grace. And I don't know how Barabbas processes this. What a stroke of luck! 
What an experience of grace. That the guilty is set free. It's a beautiful story and something grips our heart about it. Something is immediately intriguing about this idea of the guilty going free. But it leaves us asking this additional question. How can guilty people go free today? And for the sake of time, I kind of want to move on to a third question this passage puts in front of us. Why is the notorious convict going free? The second question, because there is a substitute. And question number three, why is the innocent condemned? Because he was that substitute. Not for Barabbas only. In fact, perhaps not for Barabbas particularly. But Jesus was that substitute who opens the door of freedom not for one notorious convict alone, but for countless millions of guilty sinners around the world and across the ages. Why is the innocent condemned? Because He was our substitute. Why is Jesus delivered to be crucified despite the fact that it is painfully obvious that He's innocent? Unlike all of us. Why is He suffering judgment? Why is he experiencing this condemnation? Why is he condemned to die? Because he was our substitute. This is the answer that the scriptures themselves give to us. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 through 6 say it in beautifully poetic language. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned Everyone to his own way. Who is guilty? Everyone except for this spotless lamb. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why is the innocent condemned? Because he is our substitute. Here's how the New Testament reflects on it and explains it. For Christ also suffered once for sins. 
This echoes a phrase we find elsewhere. Once for all. Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for or in place of the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Why was the innocent one condemned? What does the death of Jesus Christ so many years ago have to do with us today? He was our substitute. And the result of His work as our substitute is very good news indeed. Hear this in light of the fact that we have turned everyone to our own way. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us, in light of the fact that the, the innocent one was condemned, listen to this good news that results today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that good news? Let's just do a little repetition thing, all right? I want to give you a chance to say this good news out loud, all right? The therefore refers to the fact that the innocent one was condemned in our place as our substitute. Would you repeat after me? There is therefore now. There is therefore now. No condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. That's good news. What does the death of Jesus Christ so many years ago have to do with us today? It means He was condemned. The righteous for the unrighteous. The sinless one for the sinful ones like you and me. He was condemned in our place so that this good news could be spoken over our lives by grace through faith in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what effect does that have for us? One effect is a freedom from guilt and shame. One of the very sweet effects of understanding that He was our substitute, that the innocent one was our substitute, that He died in our place, that He took the condemnation that we deserved. When we begin to see that, one of the effects is that we discover a freedom from guilt and shame. That freedom from guilt and shame is not based on pretending that we haven't done anything wrong. And you know why I say that? Because most of the ways that most of us have learned to look for freedom from guilt and shame is through this pathway called pretending. We feel guilt, we feel shame in our hearts, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. And the best way some of us have ever figured out how to deal with guilt and shame is just to pretend our way out of it. To just pretend like what I did was not that big of a deal. 
to just pretend like nobody else will ever have to know. To just pretend like as long as nobody else got hurt this time, it's okay. To pretend like if I just try harder, God will understand. To pretend like if I just do my best, you know, that's enough. The best way that some of us have figured out how to deal with this sense of our guilt and shame in our lives is by pretending. Or maybe worse, by hiding. By just thinking, if I just keep it hidden long enough, it'll be okay. But better news the gospel brings. Instead of hiding from our guilt and shame, instead of hiding from the truth about what we've done and where we've been, instead of hiding from other people, Instead of pretending our way along, instead of letting the lies of shame pull us away into into this lifestyle of just avoiding, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a path through which with total honesty and nothing but humility, we can experience true freedom, not fake freedom. Not pretend freedom, true freedom from guilt and shame. And oh, what sweet news that is. Here's how one, uh, here's how one person described it. Fleming Rutledge wrote a profound book about the cross called The Crucifixion. And in her book, She explains this effect of freedom from guilt and shame like this. Fleming Rutledge writes, The gospel has a very specific outcome. It shows how Christ assumed the weight of sin and guilt that lies upon the human spirit precisely in the moment that the weight is lifted. It's a profound description of of what's going on there, by the way. The cross shows how Christ assumed the weight of sin and guilt precisely in the moment that weight of sin and guilt is lifted from us. And it therefore powerfully evokes from us a sense of thanksgiving. Do you feel that sense of thanksgiving in your hearts? Thank you, Lord. A sense of thanksgiving so profound, she says, that we no longer need to avoid accountability, but can gladly embrace it. Isn't that fascinating? I think so many of us imagine freedom from guilt just looking like no one will ever find out. But the gospel gives us a far better depiction of how guilt can be dealt with. The weight of our guilt and shame was laid on Him when He was condemned in our place. When condemned in our place, He stood. He took it. He took it all the way to the grave. And He left it there, never to be resurrected again. Oh, He was resurrected. But our guilt and shame that was buried with Him Buried there forevermore. 
And so a better path forward, not just a path forward that says nobody will ever find out. It's not that big of a deal anyway. We just have to keep trying to tell ourselves that over and over and over again, and it doesn't really work. Instead, the gospel opens up for us a totally new kind of freedom in which we say, because he dealt with it and dealt with it all the way, I'm so free that I don't need to avoid accountability. I can gladly accept accountability. One effect of seeing what Christ has done as our substitute, as the innocent one who was condemned in our place, one effect is a true freedom from guilt and shame. Another effect that shows up in our lives is plain and simply joy and worship. When we realize how much Jesus Christ has done for us in giving Himself, dying in our place, when we realize the length that He went to as the innocent one who was condemned to death for us, when we realize the lengths that He went to, we find ourselves glad-heartedly joining in the song of heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And after thousands of years of celebrating the victory of the Lamb who was slain, do you know what heaven is still shouting about? Heaven is still shouting, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I've said this before, and I'm not going to get tired of saying it. If heaven doesn't get tired of celebrating the lamb that was slain, what's up with us when we get tired of it, right? When we see the lengths that he went to, the innocent one condemned as a substitute, as our representative dying in our place, one of the effects is just plain and simply joy and worship. I'll just, I'm going to call him Martin Luther here to have a word with us, all right? These things are too good. I don't have the words. So let's just keep calling people in to talk to us about it. Martin Luther, when he was translating the New Testament into his native language of German, Martin Luther put in his preface to the New Testament this description of the gospel and its effects. He says, Christ gave all, excuse me, pause. Christ gave to all who believe as their possession, everything he had. A poor person, dead in sin, and consigned to hell, can hear nothing more comforting than this precious and tender message about Christ. And then I love this description. From the bottom of his heart, he must laugh and be glad over it if he believes it to be true. Here's the question I want to ask there. Has the message of the gospel sunk in so deep that you feel free? No more need to hide. No more need to sit in that shame. No more need to pretend your way along. Has the gospel sunk in so deep that you're feeling that freedom? And has the gospel sunk in so deep that you're ready to laugh with joy? And if not, here's what I want to suggest. There's more for us to ponder. There's more for us to observe. There's further that the Spirit of God wants to take us in beholding the glory 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We asked this important question earlier. What does the death of Jesus on the cross a long time ago have to do with us and our sins today? Some of us need to ask that question. And some of us, like Joseph Mitchell, might need to pause a little longer. Instead of just spitting out the Sunday school answer, we might need to pause a little longer to think a little bit more deeply, to consider this a little more fully, to recite the Scripture verses to ourselves a little more frequently, to sing the songs a little more meaningfully. We might need to pause for just a moment like Joseph Mitchell. Because the answer is deeper than any of us have fully grasped. Somehow, He was our representative. In this story, which highlights the guilt of everybody except for Jesus, and in this story, which features a notorious sinner going free, and in this story in which the innocent is condemned, we learn that somehow He was our substitute. And so by faith, we can walk with freedom. We can walk as freed women and freed men, no longer slaves to the powers of sin and death. And we can laugh and rejoice and join the songs of heaven. Because the innocent was condemned, the guilty, by grace, are set free. Praise His name. I want to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. As we celebrate this really good news. On the night when He was betrayed, Jesus broke bread. And He lifted up a cup and said, this represents a new covenant established by My blood for you. And in that, He established for us this tradition that we have, this tradition that Christians around the world celebrate of taking the Lord's Supper. And as we do this, as we take the bread and the cup that represents His sacrifice on our behalf, this is a moment for us to remember what He did back then. And it's a moment for us to rejoice in what it means for us right now. By faith, we are forgiven and free. If you've joined us today and you're not a Christ follower yourself, we'll ask you to kind of hang out where you are for a minute or two. We'll sing another song and you can join us in that. The reason we ask you to hang out where you are for a minute or two is because taking the Lord's Supper is a 
sign of faith in Jesus. It's a sign of following Him. But if that's you and you arrive today thinking, I'm not a Christ follower. As you're hearing about this good news. This good news of Christ who was sacrificed as our representative. Sacrificed as our substitute. Listen, we sympathize with the guilt and the shame that every one of us in this room has felt. But we want you to hear the very good news that even right now, even today, we want to invite you to come to Jesus Christ and to experience that freedom that's found in knowing that He took our condemnation for us. That He died our death in our place. We would love for you to discover that freedom and we would love for you to join us in rejoicing even today by turning to Jesus And trusting in Him as your representative. As our substitute. As our Redeemer. At this time, I'd like to invite all who are living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and substituted Himself for us. I'd love to invite you to come in glad-hearted remembrance of what He did back then. And in glad-hearted celebration of what it means for us today. Brothers and sisters, I'd love to invite you to come. You may come.
Let's continue coming to take the Lord's Supper. Um, but if you have finished, you may stand with us. We're just going to sing and celebrate in Jesus, our sacrificial substitute.
sing of his power to save sinners. Amen. What good word we've heard today. Jesus, our sin bearing substitute. Uh, We have a great savior. Let's go from here rejoicing in what he has done. Um, If you are new here, we'd love love to get you connected more with our church, but you can visit RedeemerAurora.com. Uh, Redeemer Aurora in 